All right, if you take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, a Gospel of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1. Uh, as you're turning there, I'll just remind you a little bit about last week and what we learned. Uh, we began our study of the Gospel of Mark last week, and um, without apology, we are taking our time through this inspired account of the life of Christ. Uh, in my opinion, and perhaps ho- hopefully it goes beyond me, uh, we as followers of Jesus Christ at Colonial Baptist Church, um, as we are followers of his, we should, uh, we should do diligence to study and to know the words of Christ. In other words, if we hope to have any integrity as followers of Christ in our pursuit of following him, then we should not apologize for taking a serious look at what Jesus both taught and what he did. And so you might wonder from time to time, you know, why, why would you do a whole study of a book like this? Well, we are, we are followers of Jesus. And as followers, we should know what he said. We should know what he did. In particular, last week we learned that Mark has much to say in the beginning of this gospel about the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of Jesus, or his absolute power and ability. We learned last week that Jesus wasn't like overly sensitive about making authoritative claims. It's not like he was just passively hinting at the fact that he might be the son of God. No, He comes right out and he makes the claims that he's God's son. And Mark highlights that this morning. Uh, Now, the way we saw Jesus demonstrate his own authority last week, uh, starting in Mark chapter 1, we we saw it two ways. First, Jesus was announcing God's kingdom. He was announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and he made demands on people. So God's kingdom is here, so you must repent and believe the good news that I'm proclaiming to you. He also demonstrated his authority, if you notice, especially in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, by him gathering or calling out disciples. Um, He didn't follow normal custom for a rabbi or a teacher, but he went and he actually made demands of uh, two groups of followers, two, two groups of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. He goes to them, and Mark narrates the story that he goes to them and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, and and they immediately followed him. So as we continue this study of authority, uh, we'll look at verses 21 through 34 this morning. Now, before we do that, though, let me just ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever struggled submitting to an authority before? Perhaps even this morning, uh, someone made a demand upon you. And so you began asking questions like, who in the world is this person to make these claims over me? I mean, they are just a human being after all, I think. (laughs) They are just human beings, so why should I submit to them? Or sometimes we struggle with submission to authority because of something imperfect in the authority. We look around, we see, you know, this 
this authority that I have in government or at work or at home or whatever is not a perfect person. They make their own mistakes. Why should I submit to them? Well, of course, with Jesus, we don't have that problem. Jesus is a perfect leader, but Mark's going to give us a few other reasons today why we should submit to the authoritative commands of Jesus. I want to look at verses 21 through 34 today because I think all of these events occur in large part in one day. So you get like one day in the life of Jesus. And uh, Mark reminds us of a few things. Uh, first, Jesus shows his authority through his teaching and his action in verses 21 through 28. Look in your Bibles at verse 21. It says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Here Jesus again demonstrates his authority, this time in his teaching and his actions. His teaching is recorded for us in verses 21 and 22, and then verses 23 through 28 will be his actions. So in in verses 21 and 22, Mark leads by capturing the way that people responded to the teaching of Jesus. Now Jesus's day here actually begins at night, I believe, on the Sabbath, according to Jewish custom and ritual. So as this starts, we we learn he's in Capernaum with the four disciples that he's just recruited, and he's there on the Sabbath, I believe, as the Sabbath is occurring in the evening. Now, as was Jewish custom, Jews would normally start the Sabbath in the synagogue where they would spend times, they would have a formal service together, And uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum, they would start by spending time in prayer, and then they'd have readings from the law and the prophets, whatever sections of scripture they may have had access to in the synagogue in Galilee. And then, most frequently, they would have a homily or a sermon where someone would teach them the word of God. And this particular Sabbath day, uh, the citizens of Capernaum are in for a real treat because they're going to hear a guest speaker by the name of Jesus of Nazareth a little town not too far away, and they will, they will leave dumbstruck or dumbfounded by the power of this preacher. Now, one of the things I'll point out to you here in verses 21 and 22 is that Mark does not really tell us what Jesus said. He's not giving us the content of Jesus' sermon in the text. Instead, he focuses on the way the crowds responded to his teaching. The crowds in the synagogue in Capernaum Uh, immediately detect a difference in Jesus' teaching, for it was authoritative, or it was uniquely powerful. 
in its entire message, including both its content, but also uh, delivery. And in the text, if you look in verse 21, actually verse 22, it says, they were astonished at his teaching. That's how Mark portrays their response. They're astonished, which is a, a very vivid Greek word, which means something like, you know, some overwhelming feelings some feelings overwhelmed the people who heard him, whether it was fear, panic, guilt, whatever. They're overwhelmed. And that's because I think Christ's teaching sort of jumped out at them. It was different than things that they had seen before. And that's because he taught them, as the text says, as one who had authority, not as the scribes. I think as uh, Mark gets this place and he's commenting on the teaching of Jesus Christ, he's, he's really portraying the, the fact that Jesus had a mastery of the word of God. Uh, I don't believe that Jesus typically would come, as many of the scribes would, and say, you know, well, on this particular subject, there are these four or five different views, and theological experts, or Rabbi so-and-so says this, or Rabbi so-and-so says that. The scribes were good at collecting all of the traditions of the elders and keeping people in line or in custom to all the different positions and thoughts, whereas Jesus' proclamation is authoritative. He's able to tell them exactly what God would say about something and what position they should hold. I mean, I don't know that there was much room for theological debates after you heard Jesus. It's not like, well, you know, that guy up there said all this stuff. I don't know if I buy all that stuff. How'd you like to get into a debate with the Son of God? It's not like you could debate the relevance of the message that the the person is proclaiming to you. It's like, okay, this is powerful. Christ was a powerful teacher because he knew the word of God well. And uh, I would suggest that he's the most powerful teacher that these people had ever heard. And his power came from his character his nature, his essence. You see, Mark, even in the way he tells us, without giving much of the content of his sermon, I think is drawing attention to the character of the preacher, the essence of the preacher. Have you ever heard a preacher before and you're listening to him and he kind of won you over to the seriousness of his message, but he, ne- he didn't do it this time necessarily by the words that he used, but by the way he lived? And one of the things I I cover in the new members class is as a pastor, uh, our pastors, we have different ways to influence the congregation. And I say there are two primary ways a pastor can influence the congregation. One is through his teaching of the word of God. And we take that very seriously here. I say, you know, according to the New Testament, I think especially the pastoral epistles, the other way a pastor influences the congregation profoundly is through his example through his example. I mean, if I'm like just getting up here week after week and I'm saying all this good stuff, but I'm not living any of it, eventually you will come to find out, I don't know about that guy's sermon. But it's a combination. I not only should, should know the word, I should live it. And with Jesus, of course, you have the perfect example. These people are just overwhelmed. They're astonished at his preaching because it's coming from a person whose essence and character is divine. 
And so we see the authoritative teaching of Jesus, verse 21, 22. That leads to the authoritative actions of Jesus in verses 23 through 28. And I want to make our way through this text uh, by reading the narrative with you and drawing attention to its four main characters. Character one is found in verses 23 and 24, and it's a man with an unclean spirit. Look in your Bibles at verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so, I mean, this is the scenario. In the small synagogue in Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee, not only are there Jews worshiping, a demon-possessed man has also decided to come on this day of worship this Sabbath in the synagogue. And Mark describes that this man had been completely overtaken by what he calls an unclean spirit. Now, the phrase unclean spirit is a word that you're going to see in Mark's gospel over and over again, about 11 times. This is the way Mark will refer to people who are possessed by demons. But in the way he describes it, I think it's very telling. The word unclean is actually an adjective, and you could translate it something like this. This man had a defiling spirit, a spirit that defiled him or made him dirty or sinful. And so this unclean, this man with an unclean spirit notices Jesus, and he cries out through the man's voice, That's why I'd say he's overtaken the man. Not the man speaking per se, but the the, the unclean spirit speaking through him saying, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? To go through this particular thing, one of the things that drew my attention this week is what does he mean by us? Okay, again, a man with a defiling spirit, the defiling spirit speaking through him saying, what are you gonna do to us? The question is, who is the us? different ways you could take it. I think what he's, he's doing is in a public scene in the synagogue, he's looking around with all the other people in the synagogue. He says, Jesus, have you come to destroy all of us? Those who are here to gather, gather together. And then the very next line, he makes a statement and he says, I. Now we're getting a very personal statement from this unclean spirit. And he says this, he says, I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. You see that in your Bible? I want to take a little bit of time just to look at that with you. I think with that statement, I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God, this defiling spirit reveals that he not only knows Jesus, you got to remember, he's a fallen demon who knows the Son of God, who understands the full deity of this person from years past. He not only knows Jesus, I believe that he fears him. He fears him, and that can be found uh, in this statement as well. Uh, It was a common practice in ancient times for someone to attempt to gain mastery over a spirit being by using their precise name. So if, if you let the spirits know that you knew all about them, including where they were coming from, that would hopefully be an indication to the spirits and to others 
that you not only knew who they were, you knew how to defeat them. This is a common practice. As a matter of fact, one commentator, R.T. France, describes this practice in ancient times. He says, in ancient times, exorcists were believed to gain power by possession of the demon's name. But then he comments, he says, and perhaps the demon here attempts to no avail to reverse the process. So what I'm saying here is the demon fully acknowledges the precise name and mission of Jesus, and I believe that he does that because he's afraid of him, or he's trying to like ward off the power of the Son of God, as if that's going to work. You know, instead of this just being an ancient custom, I think we still do stuff like this today. Have you ever tried to let someone else know that you're in control by telling them everything you know about them or their being? You know, so for instance, you walk into a room at night and someone turns out the lights on you. Okay. How do you respond? Well, sometimes other people will do this. Well, you say something like, Carissa, I know what you're doing. You might as well turn on the lights, right? Or I remember when I was a child, as a child, I grew up in the country, and I went, to a, I went to a school that was a tenth of a mile away from my house. And so my father came up with this great strategy where he actually cut out a channel in the woods to make a path from my house, from the driveway of my parents' home, to where the school was. And that was fine, except at night. Okay, sometimes I'd go to a basketball game or whatever and come back and be late at night. And even as a teen boy, I remember coming through that channel in the woods and then my parents' driveway is this like long, windy driveway. There's one little light at the, at the very top of the driveway. And you see, you're kind of walking. There's woods on both sides. I remember many times being frightened in the country, thinking something was going to get me. Uh, personal confession, one of the things I would do from time to time is I would sing, Lord, I need you. Do you know that song? <laughs> Lord, I need you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going down the trail. Or I would try this. I would occasionally, and I actually did this. I can remember doing this. I, I would say, I see you over there behind that tree. You might as well come out. What was I doing there? Okay. I mean, what would I have done if someone would have come out from behind the tree? Yeah. I think the demon is doing something very similar here with the personality of Jesus, with his person mission. That's the testament of the demon. He's afraid of the power and the authority of Christ. He's character number one. That leads us to our second character. Verse 24, did you notice how the defiling spirit identified Jesus? He calls him the Holy One of God. Jesus is exactly the opposite of the defiling, corrupting spirit. He's the Holy One. Let's look at verses 25 and 26 to see what happens when the Holy One of God comes in contact with a defiling spirit. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit 
convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now notice here that Jesus does not use any props, spells, incantations, portions, none of those things. I mean, said he had no set technique when it came to exercising a demon. But here, he simply commands and the demon obeys. He uses words and not many of them. He says, be silent, to be translated something like, muzzle it and come out of him. We see the authority of Jesus in this statement. And the defiling spirit has no choice but to obey. So the defiling spirit comes out of him, and on his way out, this demon shrieks, and he causes the man to convulse. As, as I was considering that uh, this morning, uh, or this week, uh, a few things I noted. I, I went through some of the Second Temple literature, Greek, Roman literature this week, to find out, are there like a lot of exorcisms that we could read about? And I found very few outside of the New Testament. I mean, we might think that this was like a common practice in the first century. People were just going around like exercising demons and casting them out. It's not true, at least according to what we have available for us from that era. You know, Jesus did and the disciples did it. Most of that's, and that's found in the New Testament. This is a, a rare thing. But I was, I was kind of struck by, you know, this demon coming out, shrieking and causing a man to convulse. And I, I read one commentator who, who, who usually is very reliable, and I, I think that he believes he's got this right, but I just want to read you a statement. I think that I would disagree with this, and I'll tell you why. His name is Mark Strauss, and he writes this. He said, the convulsion and the shriek are common features of exorcisms. One, I don't know exactly how he would know that. They indicate both the last futile attempt to injure the man as well as the visible confirmation that the demon has left. Okay, and there's a good portion of that I would agree. I'd agree with the end of that. The way I'd interpret the shrieking and the convulsing is not that this is the last attempt of the demon to hurt him, okay? Jesus says, muzzle it, and as far as I can understand, this defiling spirit doesn't use any words at that point. Jesus says, silence, no speaking, no words, and he doesn't do that. Um, But I would suggest that this is a visible confirmation that the demon has been extracted. I think he's right in that way. The demon here could not even hurt the man on his way out. Jesus says, muzzle it, and the defiling spirit is forced to leave. That leads us to another character, actually a group of them. In verse 27, the crowd of Jews in the synagogue and how they respond. Look at verse 27 with me. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. For he commands even the unclean spirits and they do obey him. Here it says that the the crowd of Jews that had gathered in the synagogue this day were marveling and questioning among themselves. I think this is because Jesus blew all the paradigms, all the the normal patterns that they had been accustomed to. I mean, to this point, they were only familiar with dry, monotonous echo chambers of speakers, 
who just kept repeating what all of the experts said. People who were repeating themselves and others time and time again. Now they get a man whose words are powerful. Powerful. And you ever hear a person preaching before? And there was a point in that sermon where it just felt like, you know, this isn't even, this is like a message from God to me. Now imagine hearing Jesus speak in a synagogue. Powerful. So powerful that he can disrupt demonic forces with his words. Christ is more powerful than the powers, the dark powers of wickedness. And this leads, verse 28, the entire region, that'd be character four, a group of people, the entire region to spread the fame of Christ everywhere throughout Galilee. Look at verse 28. And, and at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. It's interesting to me here that this is the first recorded miracle of Mark's gospel. Uh, as I compare it to the other gospels, the, you know, the first miracle of Jesus, I think, is recorded as John's first miracle in his gospel, John chapter 2, where Jesus performs a miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. If you remember that miracle well, Jesus comes up, or um, Mary comes up to Jesus and asks her son to perform this miracle. And it gives a certain picture of Jesus, it does picture his power, but Mark doesn't lead with that one. Mark leads with a demon being exercised, shrieking, convulsing, crowds being astounded and amazed, and the whole region spreading the fame of Christ. And so throughout these verses, verses 21 through 28, I think that Mark has given us two more reasons why we should submit to the authority of Jesus, or two two ways we know that he is authoritative. So you might ask, why should I give Jesus authority over my life? Well, Jesus gives commands not only to disciples, follow me, but to demons, silence and come out and they immediately obey. That leads us to another demonstration of Jesus's power, verses 29 through 34. As I said, this is all taking place in one day. And so in verses 29 through 34, Jesus demonstrates his authority by healing diseases and casting out many demons. Um, Again, I, I would take this next part to be occurring on the Sabbath as well, and it breaks into two significant movements. So look down at verse 29. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So here a very fast-paced account where Jesus heals the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. Okay, so... Simon Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. And yes, this implies that Simon or that Peter was married. Okay, now, unfortunately, we don't know much at all about the wife of Peter, especially during the earthly ministry of Jesus. 
Okay, so I had a bunch of questions you just can't answer from the Bible. Like, you know, I, I see the 12 disciples, I think of them as like single men following Jesus around. What about Peter's wife? We just don't know. Later on, we know that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that when Peter traveled, he took his wife around with him sometimes in traveling ministries after Jesus's ministry. Well, this text, Peter has a mother-in-law and she has a fever. We not only don't know about Peter's wife, we don't know about the cause of this fever. Uh, but that's probably because ancient people thought of fevers as diseases in and of themselves. Okay, so we might hear fever. Matter of fact, when I first read this, I hear fever and I think, well, this seems to be a bit minor, right? It's like, okay, go to bed, sleep it off and you'll be okay. However, I don't think this is minor because in a parallel text, the Gospel of Luke tells us that she had a great fever. It puts the adjective great in front of it. And of course, since they thought of this as a disease, this fever may have come from any type of disease. We don't even know what the cause of the great fever was. Regardless, Jesus performs a miracle. The Holy One takes her hand he takes her hand. She's unclean because of the disease, but he takes her hand, and his holiness overcomes her uncleanness. And it says that the fever departed from her. It leaves her. One of the interesting things I've seen in this text is uh, there's a verb that's used three times throughout Mark chapter 1. And it's actually amazing. It, the, way it, the way Mark tells the story, he's got Jesus coming in. Use the verb, Jesus is coming in. And then three times, something departs. Okay, so one time early on, Jesus comes in and the demon leaves. Or chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Here, Jesus comes, takes her by the hand, and the disease, the fever, leaves. In fact, later on, in the end of chapter chapter, uh, 1, you'll see that as well. And so what Mark is portraying is this, this person is so authoritative the son of God, that when he comes, devils leave and so do diseases. He's authoritative. That's verses 29 through 31. Really, there's not much there. Uh, He comes, takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and the fever leaves, departs. And then she begins to serve them. It's an interesting little note as well. Uh, She begins to serve them. I see not as a a reference to like this is her rightful place or whatever as a follower, but it's just evidence that she was really healed of her fever. It's like sometimes when you're healed from sickness or whatever, you're starting to feel better, you know, you give the advice, well, why don't you just like go take a few hours, take a few days, and just keep like sleeping it off just to make sure. Now she's like so healed, she gets up and she starts serving him. It's confirmed. That leads to uh, verses 32 through 34, multiple healings and exorcisms at sundown. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and casted out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Here in verses 32 through 34, after the Sabbath restrictions for travel had ceased at sundown. Okay, so Sabbath starts in the evening at sundown, goes the whole way through the next day to the next day 
at sundown. You know, during those times, of course, Jews couldn't really travel very much. So as soon as those restrictions are ended at sundown, a few visitors show up at Peter's house. Peter's house. Um, to meet Jesus. It's amazing to me how Mark describes this. It, he says that the town came out to see Jesus at the house of Peter. Um, actually, in Capernaum, it's, it's estimated or guessed that there'd be approximately 10,000 people living in the city at this time. And so Mark says, you know, the town comes out to see Jesus at Peter's house. And not only do they come out to see him, they bring the sick from the whole city, including those who are oppressed by demons and those who are brought to him. And, and Jesus heals them, those who had sickness. Now, near the end of this text, verse 34, <coughs> we learn that Jesus forbids the demons from speaking about him again. Now, this is starting a pattern. If you are reading through the beginning of Mark's gospel in preparation for the sermons, and you've gone in chapters two and three, you'll see repeatedly Jesus is gonna do this stuff. Matter of fact, it's it's led theologians to really speculate. They, They call it the messianic secret. Why was Jesus all concerned that no one would really understand his identity yet? So far in the text, all we've seen is that Jesus is forbidding demons from saying who he is. I mean, why would he do that? Well, I want to suggest just a few things here. I think we might not know necessarily, but for some reason, Jesus did not want everyone to know who he was at this moment or right at this point. I know that might not make sense to us. We desire sometimes fame and popularity in any way we can get it. Something cool happens to us. We take a picture and we say, man, post that. Post that. Put that up. I mean, we're looking sometimes for fame or popularity in like any way we can get it. But Jesus wasn't into that. Well, there may be different reasons for this. It seems to me that Jesus is concerned that people will be drawn to him prematurely and for the wrong reasons. There is a perfect timing to the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, there are certain things that God wants him to accomplish in his three-year earthly ministry. And so I see some of these initial signs, Jesus silencing people and telling them not to say something as a means of kind of slowing down the timeline so that Jesus can, can do all of the things that God wants him to do. Also, Jesus doesn't want the wrong sort of attractions. I I don't think Jesus has any stomach for a demon being being the one to introduce the gospel to Jesus or to people. Not to mention, as we we go through the text, I think uh, Jesus is concerned that people will start following him for the wrong reasons. And that's just evident, isn't it? I mean, 24 hours before this or so, Jesus performs an exorcism, then who shows up at the door? Like every sick and demon-possessed person in the city. Even in this text, people hear about the exorcism and they line up for Jesus to perform miracles and exorcise demons. 
But healings and exorcisms are not the primary reason that Jesus came to this earth. He came to preach and teach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yet Jesus performs multiple healings and miracles here at sundown. What an evening it must have been. One day in the life of Jesus. Mark portrays Jesus' sovereign authority and power to perform these healings and exorcisms for his glory. So we've worked our way through this text, and we've seen that Jesus demonstrates authority again. He teaches powerfully. He exercises demons. He heals fevers and various diseases. As we close, I want us to ask ourselves the question, or maybe you've been asking throughout the day, well, what does all this mean for us? And I would suggest that it means everything. Jesus is your, if, if Jesus is your Lord, then you must live in submission to him. Sometimes in our life, although we know the authoritative claims of our master and savior, Jesus Christ, and we know what he would have us do, we object or reject Jesus's authoritative claims and we live however we want. We say, I know what you would want me to do here, Jesus, but I'm going to serve my own lusts and desires instead. I'm going to look at these sinful images to satisfy myself. Or I'm going to vent in anger at work because I just have to. I know Christ, what you say about meekness, what you say about the way we should respond to opposition, but I'm just going to vent because it's who I am. I know what you would say about how I should not talk about other people, but I'm going to tell others about someone here in the church who's wronged me anyway. I mean, if there is an authoritative command of Jesus that we're aware of, that every gospel ends with, it's this one. Go and make disciples of all the nations. I mean, we read that today. And we know that Jesus is the absolute authority over our lives. He has claims on us, and he claims for us to go and make disciples. But then we say, no, I'm comfortable in my home. I'm tired, it's been a long week. I'm just gonna disregard the authoritative command of my savior. No, Jesus has authoritative claims on your life. And he says, lust is wrong. Anger is wrong. Gossip is wrong. Failing to go and disciple others is wrong. It's like we can read all this stuff about the authority of Jesus and we can feel warm and fuzzy about a savior who's on our side, who like can wipe out everyone else. Like demons, they're nothing. Four words, gone. But we need to understand that his authoritative claims have to do with us as well as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps there's some in the room this morning who have never turned to Jesus and repented of their sin. You may have heard a gospel before where someone proclaimed to you, all you need to do is believe in the name of Jesus and you can be saved. Kind of like you can keep living the way you want to live. And if you just have this faith thing, Jesus will snatch you, he will save you. That's not true according to the scripture. Jesus' claim, if you've never repented of your sin and believed in the name of Jesus, that's what you must do. Become a follower of his. His claims are for you. He's the son of God. And if you would submit to him and his lordship, it would be the most wonderful decision you've ever made. His lordship is not uh, overwhelming. It's not, as I was saying at the intro of the sermon, it's not like he's imperfect in any way or he's abusing authority and it's just, you know, so difficult to be under him. No, Jesus is the greatest Lord the world will ever know. So if you're here today and you've never repented of your sin and believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, his authority reigns over you as well, and he would call you to do that. Let's bow to the Lord and pray. As we go to prayer, just give you one moment, one minute here, especially for those in the room who are followers of Jesus. I invite you to consider your own life. I gave just a few examples of the ways that we sometimes say no to Jesus' authority in our lives. But perhaps there's some area of your life where you know what Jesus would have you do. You know how Jesus would have you respond in that situation. But yet you've been making decisions following sins, feeding the flesh, and declaring through your life that Jesus' lordship doesn't really mean much to you. I encourage you to consider that area or those areas and to repent of that sin. To ask God for grace and strength to see the claims of Jesus over your life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of coming here this morning and standing up in this pulpit and talking about Jesus. Lord, we at Colonial Baptist Church claim to be followers of Jesus. And that means that we'll need to take a serious look at what he said, what he did. And what he said and what he did in this text, demonstrate his authority, his absolute power as the Son of God and his claims over humanity. Or as we have seen, Jesus' lordship, his rightful lordship over our lives today. I pray that we'd be willing to assess our life, to confess those areas where we have not submitted to Christ in, in his lordship, And Lord, we pray that you give us grace to live in ways that reflect our great Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.